Hello and welcome to the Financial Fox, another episode on banking. And this is going to be a fun panel discussion and conversation where we don't really focus on the banking crisis that I've already discussed with one of the guests a couple of weeks ago, but we focus more on the future of banking and what is broken in the current system and how we can use technology and innovation to push the boundaries and deliver product that actually serve people and businesses. We talk about Web3, we talk about AI, we talk about DeFi and many other things. And we dive into the real problem that banking is facing now. But let me introduce you to my amazing guest, Emmanuel Daniel, the Asian banker, a top 10 fintech global influencer and the author of the best-selling book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finances Here, and Sean Kiernan, the CEO of Green Gage. Sean has held roles in executive management in financial services and banking for many years before deciding to create something completely new, Green Gage, that is a pioneer in banking. Now, Green Gage is also the official sponsor of The Financial Fox, and here is a sneak peek for you. Green Gage provides e-money accounts for small and medium-sized enterprises, high-net-worth investors, and digital assets firms. They leverage the latest technologies, including blockchain, to unlock new funding and liquidity, a game-changing for many SMEs, which are fundamentally underserved by traditional financial services. As a client of Green Gage, you you will have a dedicated relationship manager, yes, a real person who will listen. And getting started with Green Gage is easy, trust me. I've gone through the process myself and it's been really simple and quick. So if you are seeking a more personalized experience in managing your accounts in the digital space, I genuinely encourage you to check out Green Gage. And here is a little bonus for you, my wonderful listeners. Use the code FOX10 when signing up to enjoy Enjoy a 10% on the first year's fee on corporate accounts only. The link is in the description, so take a moment to explore what Green Gage has to offer. Now, back to the show. Now, back to the show, but... Before we dive into our panel discussion, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, click the subscribe button now and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our news and interviews. And if you have any comment that you want to share with us, any question that you would like us to answer, any suggestion, please get in touch with us. You can send me an email at steffi at financialfox.news. You can get in touch with us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Or you can add a comment in the comment section of the YouTube channel because we want to hear from you. Hi, Emmanuel. Hi, Sean. Nice to have you on the show. Steffi, great to be back with you again. Uh, and uh, Sean, great meeting you. Uh, you know, I'm excited to meet the CEO of uh, yet another digital bank. You know, very excited to know the DNA of your, you know, of your business model and then sort of, um, you know, jive with you in terms of uh, where this is all going. Thanks a lot for having me, Steffi. Great to meet you, Manuel. Really excited. Yeah, fantastic. So we said that today we are going to discuss the future of banking in Web3 and AI. 
And uh, I think, Emmanuel, we had a conversation last time about what's wrong with the current banking system and all the opportunity that new technology are opening up. And Sean, you are doing uh, this experimentation, positioning Green Gage as the future of uh, banking. Can we say that, maybe? Yeah, go for it. Exactly. So perhaps before we start, a quick introduction so all the listeners know who you are, what you do, and then we can just dive into it. My claim to fame uh, is that I'm the founder of something called The Asian Banker 28 years ago, uh, which then became uh, you know, the, the prominent uh, or preeminent uh, banking research company uh, across the Asia-Pacific region. And then we started growing into the Middle East and Africa. And so we became not Asian anymore. And as banking became uh, more fintech and everything else, we were not banker either. So we've rebranded uh, to be Tab Global, taking you know the history of the name, the Asian banker, and then to, to globalize what we're doing. Uh, we do uh, a number of amazing things around the world. Uh, I have another program called Wealth and Society, where we, um, where we build a proposition that you know, wealth in itself is of no use unless it's relevant to society. So we look at uh, philanthropy and all of that. Uh, and through both of these platforms, I, I get to travel around the world. Uh, and uh, I released my first book uh, in October last year on the future of finance, The Great Transition, the personalization of finance is here. And I think uh, that's what Steffi uh, has, uh, has has a conversation with me. And I'd like to test some ideas with Sean this, uh, in this conversation. Uh, great to meet um, uh, all the listeners. My name is Sean Kiernan. I'm the founder of GreenGage, which is a digital merchant banking pioneer. Uh, really excited to hear Manuel's thoughts on this. Um, we're, we're what I call a non-banking uh, fintech partner in that we offer e-money banking services that are crypto-friendly to uh, companies, individuals, and we combine, I think, the best of Coots and Revolut. And for non-UK listeners, those are uh, a fintech backend for 24-7 access with app and website, as well as a human being. So every single client has a banker or human that can speak with them about what they need. And we, we have alongside that uh, a lending platform where we provide options for our clients to get access to, to loans from traditional sources as well as the new digital stuff, which is very exciting. Yeah, wow. Okay, guys, let's get started. What is going to be the future of banking, in your view? Let's start with like the heavy question, and then uh, and then we dive a little bit more into you know some specific topics like Web three and AI as well. Uh, before we start talking about the future of banking, what is the present of banking? And the present okay. of banking, uh, you know, and I want to throw this in for discussion. I want to say that. The banking industry missed the API revolution, okay, uh, and the open source revolution. Uh, we are now in the year 2023, about 15 years after uh, open um, open source computing uh, became uh, mainstay. You know, the large IT companies like Microsoft and Adobe and SAP and, and even Oracle uh, have got um, architectures where they allow their, their users uh, to decide how they want to interface with, uh, with the applications, with the platforms that they provide. Uh, and what did the banking industry do? The regulators put the fear of God into the industry and said the data that sits inside your institution is more important than the data that sits outside your institution. Uh, and so the banking industry has become introverted, you know, and the API revolution 
has kept evolving. It, it moved into the blockchain environment, the, in, in, uh, in the cryptocurrency uh, ecosystems. Uh, so today, you cannot be a serious technology player if you're not open source and if you're not um, API driven. Uh, and yet, finance thinks that it's going to ace the technology revolution and sit on top of it. And that is why the, the, the distraction or the, or the competition that's coming in from decentralized finance is going to be the tail that wags the dog, which is uh, it's going to set the rules. It already is uh, setting the rules by which traditional banks uh, have to respond to, um, you know. So I'm going to s start by throwing that in uh, and any reaction is fine. And then let's build on that, too. I, I love what you said about the, the API revolution. I never heard that. I think um, I think you're spot on, actually. I think the, the plumbing of banking hasn't changed very much at all. In, in the last couple of decades, the front end experience, I mean, the way the surfaces on, on your phone or kind of the interface, it's much more digital and whizzy. Um, but the back end is, is pretty antiquated. Um, and I think that's why blockchain, DLT, the whole Web3 world is so exciting because these are ways to, to re engineer the back end. And if the back end is fully digital, the stuff on top can be a lot cheaper and more intuitive, more useful for clients. And we're just seeing the, the, the start of that, really. Is there a reason why, I mean, it's all about control. That's the, that's the reason why banking has not been able to innovate or to look out? It, it started with that. Um, you know, the regulators that I have met in various jurisdictions in the UK, in the US, in Singapore, they all had a secret ambition uh, at the start of the you know, disruption that the, the fintech players were originally bringing into the industry in the late 2010s, that, that they wanted to absorb this, all of this innovation and preserve the banking industry as they know it. Um, you know, so uh, when you see fintech architecture where the regulators put the fintechs into sandboxes, as they call it, uh, you know, to the idea is not that they want to um, you know, regulate or, or moderate the process. The idea was to absorb all of the energy and bring it back into the, uh, you know, the, the legacy banking and uh, system. Um, you know, Larry Summers himself said that, by the way, that, that, um, you know, that we need to keep the intermediation business because that's something that we understand and that, that's something that we can monetize, you know, and that's something that we can control, uh, the economy with. Uh, they, you know, they, they have no ideas, uh, beyond that. <clears throat> you know, so what, what has happened so far is two very important things that the digitization of finance has created uncontrollable features uh, like when we saw Silicon Valley Bank go under over a weekend, uh, when you digitize the deposit business, um, you're, talk, you're dealing with speed that you never was, was never able to deal with before. And, and when, when you do it with de the deposit business, it's also affecting the treasury side of the banking business. So uh, when you look at what a treasurer does on a daily basis, he's now no longer able to um, you know, to to uh, to moderate all of the factors that he has to deal with on a daily basis, um, using the existing technology that we have, and then on uh, on crypto, uh, an entire treasury function is being built on an app, uh, on the back of an algorithm. Uh, you know, and and by freelancers for contributing to the process, um, and and that's what decentralized finance is today, and it's going to be it's going to be working backwards. And the, and the bank treasurer is going to say to himself, 
wait a minute, why can't we use that technology and, and bring it back into the banking, uh, into our bank? You know, otherwise we will not be able to handle, um, you know, all of the market fee, uh, forces that are that are that are affecting the industry because of digitization. And um, and then there is the other aspect of it, which is. <clears throat> and this is something that I'm testing uh, with a number of the IT vendors. IT vendors sell to the banks uh, this feature where they can uh, bring together disparate systems uh, in their core banking, you know, backend, and uh, and and create uh, connections between silos in in customer information, in products, and so on. Um, you know what ChatGPT can theoretically do? It, it can just connect or, or draw data from anywhere in your institution. So technically, it's a given. <clears throat> but the vendors are saying to me, that's not what's happening yet. But I'm just testing the idea. So I, you know, and I want to see uh, at which point uh, will the whole idea of a core banking system become totally redundant. It's, it's been very interesting. I've, I've set up a bank before. I used to work at Credit Suisse from scratch. And the technology that a bank used to use was very much a single core operating system. And you had a single provider who offered all the bells and whistles. And it was quite clunky if you wanted to change anything. And that, that's moved on a lot. You have a very thin core banking system now, I think best practice. And you layer on a constellation of apps around that. Um, and in a way, that's a step towards what I see. I think we would agree, uh, kind of the Web3 journey of DeFi probably becoming the plumbing of banking. Um, but you'll need contexts of perhaps walled gardens or whitelisted addresses if you're going to allow monies to pass through that that are not just in the, in the safe space of your own balance sheet. And I, I completely agree that for us, I mean, when I set up Green Gauge, I did want a full banking license. Um, and having watched what's happened in the market, particularly our clients being very sophisticated and digitally savvy, um, we cannot build the fractional reserve lending book if our deposits are not sticky. Um, we're, we're seeing now clients that can port their assets at the push of a button in the millions. Um, and if they can do that, it's very difficult for treasury and credit systems to grow a, a sustainable book. Um, I think the biggest banks still, the, the, the names like JP Morgan, etc., will have a sustainable business model for that because they're so plugged in and so, so big. Um, but for a startup bank or a challenger bank, it's tricky. And so our model and why I was so conscious thinking about how do we deliver what banking is, which is, I mean, I see it as two functions generally, providing liquidity and the pricing of risk. Um, if we can deliver those functions with a different model, which is approximating what the services of a bank are, i.e. e-money banking services, so having accounts where the funds do not sit on our balance sheet, but they sit in a third-party custodian and so are safe, and we're not using them for, for, for reserve lending, um, and then providing lending by plugging into third parties. That's the way we could still deliver what the clients are looking for. But I, I agree, I think, that the fully tech dream of kind of smart contracts and all the innovation that's happening that you can do on your phone or computer, people still want a user interface, so they have a, a, a medium of trust to be able to access these services. And it's very difficult to know best in class when you have all these different solutions and, and almost a, I call it kind of the, the Cambrian explosion of life that we're seeing just as people come up with different apps on everything all the time. Um, you do need a specialist to kind of sift through the wheat and the chaff and, and bring the right things to you as a client and understanding you as a client. And that's why we focused on relationships and transactional data as a source of truth for what we think is a sustainable business model. So that's that's very interesting because it tied up very well with the manual, with your views of personalization of banking. And and Shana, for what I'm you know understanding while you're talking is like our focus, Green Gauge focus, is really like the clients and the person, and 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 that you know that's the personalized banking experience they need to have. So, 
And then you have got Web3 that is all about experience. So how we are kind of tied everything up together and how this uh, new banking is looking like? Uh, I mean, I see this as um, two broad, broad trends, if I may. Uh, one, which is the pure tech. And I, I would call this the Terminator style, where the tech itself is the, the end goal. And you, you can work with the tech to deliver whatever solutions you want. Um, the vision that I'm pursuing, which I think can sit in complement or in parallel, is more what I would call the Iron Man or Iron Woman style, where the tech is an enabler, kind of it makes what we do possible. But I think at the end of the day, we are still people, and people want to work with people that are, are kind of able to moderate the, the tech and, and work with them to, to find the right solution for them. And that's the approach that I feel more comfortable with. It's my background. I'm not saying the other kind of Terminator style pure tech is, is wrong. I think they'll exist together, and we can learn from each other. Uh, the thing that I tell bankers today uh, is that <clears throat> if the product doesn't change, nothing changed, okay? So, <clears throat> uh, and I have this mantra, I, I put it in my book, and, and uh, that's how I test uh, how innovative a, a any business is, not just financial institutions. Then the question is, what about financial services needs to change? Um, you know, if, if it's going to be uh, the product of innovation, uh, if it is going to be uh, the result of, you know, the transformations that we talk about, if 30 years from now we are still selling good old-fashioned deposits and mortgages, you know. So, so then I applied a lot of my thinking um, into, you know, how this has taken place in other industries, and I used the famous example of Kodak where they practically invented the, you know, digital camera uh, and then sat on it and, you know, was totally in love with the uh, traditional products, which was the uh, 35mm physical film. And, you know, they advertised it continuously. In 2001, uh, Sony came up with the Cybershot and, um, and that put digital on uh, consumer cameras. And then 2007, the iPhone was invented. In 2010, um, you know, Kodak uh, went into liquidation. Uh, so then I was trying to imagine <clears throat> what, how that would be in the financial services industry. Uh, and, uh, and it took me a long time. And then I said that the product that needs to change the most is the deposit product because uh, th that was the most beloved of products. And that was the product that was being digitized most of all. And I, you know, and I thought about this long before Silicon Valley Bank. And then I drew up the, uh, you know, the, the, the formula, the roadmap, where because deposits are digitized, the, the, the value in the deposits business is not, you know, that it's, it pays a 1% interest so that it's compounded over a lifetime and you generate wealth, but it's in the utility of the deposit business to be able to access a whole range of, uh, uh, you know, uh, digital platforms and so on. And that's where your Web3 thing comes in, right? And um, that's how I think the, your Web3 idea, uh, you know, comes into play. Um, and, and then the, the digital wallet players, uh, and now there's a whole range of them from, you know, basic, you know, digital banking accounts to crypto. I mean, you know, just the whole range of them. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving the goalposts as it were. So, so the thing is that, uh, uh, and this is something I, I want to throw on at, at Sean for a reaction. Um, you know, um, this is something that I, uh, I thought uh, that then how would the product itself evolve uh, over time? And, you know, what should banks focus on? Cut a long story short, um, I came to the conclusion that the conversation is the product. 
the ability to process a lot of information on what your customer is telling you is the product. Uh, you know, and, and from there, you will figure out what your customers want to do and, and, and create the interfaces that your customers need to, to interact. Now, this is all theory. Uh, you know, I mean, it's easy for me when I don't run a bank to, to think about these things. But, uh, and, I, and I'm happy with uh, any form of reaction that John might have on, this, on these thoughts. I mean, I, I'm slightly, um, I, I feel for banks these days. I think that they're having a lot of struggles. We hear of banks de-banking or even de-lending now these days, they're, they're, they're kind of in a, in a fuddle. Um, and where I'm thinking, and I think you're spot on with the deposit bases, where almost they've lost the plot is they're, they're not listening anymore to, to clients. The, the kind of the demands of a client, and going back to basics, is they're looking for safety, they're looking for some kind of yield, they're looking for something to help them grow either their personal lives or their businesses. And if you focus on deposits specifically, like that, that is the source of truth because that that is the rainy day money. That's the money that they use for for whatever they do day to day. Um, and if we're thinking of what we see in, for example, the stablecoin space, um, we're now seeing options for clients to treat yield-bearing instruments in the form of some kind of money, so digitized money market funds or even treasuries. And if you look at what banks are actually paying on current accounts or say term deposits, this is well below the base rate in many cases, and they're, they're pocketing a nice spread, um, which I know the, the governments are not so happy about, but um, if, if consumers had a choice, and if they had access to multiple systems, and people were educated to a level where they had a user interface which allowed them to access um, different types of products, and they weren't just restricted to a tied agent model where they were only seeing one or two things from the single source of truth, their own bank, um, we, we end up with a revolution where you can perhaps get access to more money that clients can then place in different types of products, and those types of products can in turn power more lending. Um, so I, I'm very excited to see kind of this this next wave um, of of stablecoins, etc., and different products that if we can open up, and I think open banking is uh, the tip of an iceberg when you look at open finance generally. The 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 eyeballs of a client and the and the, the heart of a client and and that power of listening. I think we we have an opportunity to do something that could could very much change what banking is. And it's not really just about crypto. It's not what the mm. crypto revolution has brought. Then, uh, you know, maybe bank is trying to be a bit conservative, like Sean, like what we have seen with HSBC, you know, they kind of put down the limits for anything to do with crypto. So they're kind of like looking inwards, protecting themselves. It's much more. That's what we are saying, that there is a, this ra there is a problem in banking that it goes beyond what crypto has brought and is really not listening at uh, at people i like i like emmanuel what you said about the, really the product is the conversation is getting those data and creating those new relationships where you can adapt and change your product now i want to throw on uh, the table something else that is going to be and, and uh, very interested to see what you think about it so one of the big problems that everybody's talking about is banking the unbound what we are saying about people that don't have banking, maybe they don't have traditional banking, what, what banking can do, how we are going to solve this problem? You know, you, you, when, every time I hear someone making that comment that you, the idea is to in, introduce the, un, the poor unbanked people into the banking industry, why would you do that? Why would you bring somebody into an industry that is extractive, uh, that is leveraged, that is expensive, you know, and, and, and bring the poor people in there? 
you know, a guy who's got credit card debts is like $30,000 in debt. And the poor person who's got $1 is still richer than him. You know, so, you know, so why do you want to bring the poor people into the, into the debt market of the, of the consumer debt market of the, of the, of, of the guy who is in the bank, in the banking system, you know? So the thing is this, people don't want mortgages, they want home. People don't want, you know, an automobile loan, they want a car. Um, you know, so the poor don't want a banking um, uh, account. Liability, yeah. They want, they want capital to build a business. Um, you know, so that's the problem we need to solve. Uh, and um, decentralized finance uh, offers us many new models that, that we can explore uh, where we can help the poor um, uh, or the unbanked uh, to solve problems. And that's how the mindset should be, which is what is the problem that we are solving here? We are, we are not wanting to solve the banking problem. We want to solve the financing problem uh, of the whole world. Um, you know, and, and then guess what? Um, when I pay a close attention to what happens when the poor are, are, are onboarded to um, you know, all these lending platforms and so on, they still continue to be um, to be milked, to be uh, to be taken advantage of. The interest rate for um, microfinance has not dropped a cent. Um, you know, it, the money lenders in India, for example, uh, were charging like thirty percent. Um, you know, uh, compounded on an annual basis uh, for money that they lend. And when the when the microfinance lenders came into the marketplace, uh, you know, and, and many of these were the um, Indians who had moved to the U.S. and set up venture capital funds, and then moved back to start. Um, you know, start their own microfinance business, their interest rates were also 30%. Um, you know, and, and because there were multiple microfinance players lending to the same target audience, which was, you know, itinerant workers ca uh, coming from the villages into the city, uh, suicide rates went up. Uh, you know, and in, in one state, Andhra Pradesh, they banned microfinance. And then I looked at the data 10 years later, and, and uh, the borrowing for the unbanked went back to the, to the traditional money lenders as a result. You know? uh, and around the world, uh, there's not been an ab you know, abatement in, 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 in interest rates charged to the underbank, uh, especially when they're onboarded to uh, tech technology platforms. Um, you know? So um, now the thing is this, uh, the, the, we, we really need to rephrase this question. And anybody who says that, uh, the idea of um, you know onboarding or, or giving access to banking to un unbanked people um, need to re-examine that sentence and say why would you want to bring people back into the banking industry? Uh, and there are uh, other models today uh, that that are that are more workable. Uh, and and I've said this in my book, things like uh, community currencies and and all of that. Uh, and game to play, um, you know, uh, uh, ways in which, uh, co you know, real communities have used uh, new Web3 platforms to generate income that they otherwise would not have been able to, uh, you know, things like that. So anyway, that, 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 that's uh, my reaction to your question. Brilliant point. Brilliant point, Emmanuel. Sean? It's a very interesting take on it. I mean, I, I think you can even draw a similar parallel to the, to the U.S. housing crisis and what kind of prompted the global um, credit uh, issues we've all been experiencing the last decade. 
um, in that people that were given access to mortgages couldn't really afford them in some cases, but that, that led then to um, people then not, not really having homes uh, if, if you were given something that you, you weren't yet in a position to be able to afford. Um, I think the bit, uh, other than credit, uh, and I agree with you, there's innovative ways to get people access to money that doesn't have to be lending as such. It could be you earn through a game, as you say, or maybe there's social uh, approaches to, to incentivizing taking on risk beyond just the financial. Um, I think the biggest thing is liquidity and the access of information. I think in, in particularly emerging markets, um, and here the concept of everyday DeFi or, or, or opening up just transparency to be able to move money around without somebody taking a heavy clip and, and hiding information from you on what maybe a commodity or a good or service should cost. These are the bits that I think we need to go and, as an industry, find solutions to help people. Because as soon as you enfranchise people into these solutions, you open up a whole new consumer class, which for all of us is better. And you give people a foot in the ladder, which um, I think opens up opportunities for them, as well as for, for the emerging and developed markets alike. Um, lending is tricky, though. I, I understand your point. Um, I think lending is something that uh, is necessary for a healthily functioning economy. I think uh, it's just always a question of... of uh, and it's a delicate balance because often people that, that uh, have difficulty in paying a loan are the ones that most need the loan. Um, so the, the act of underwriting is something that is very specialist. I have a lot of time for people that do it well, but not many people do. So, so Sean, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about this uh, this topic and moving maybe to SMEs because Emmanuel, we want to get your thoughts as well. So we don't talk about unbanked; we talk about unserved small and medium enterprise business. They are struggling uh, to get funding to get liquidity. We were looking with Sean some data. I mean, two what was two billion that the Bank of England said of twenty uh, two. 22, not two. What, what yeah. I'm saying, 22. So, I mean, these, those are really big numbers. And and how can you change the system to serve these? Uh, maybe it's not even new generation of businesses. Maybe they are just businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, so they are starting. I think this is kind of like really the, the major challenge for economy to thrive. Even the UK, you know, if we don't focus on giving you liquidity to entrepreneurs, then how your economy can so specifically in the UK, the Bank of England did say that there's a 22 billion sterling funding gap for UK SMEs from the banks. I'm sure it's replicated elsewhere in other countries, and Emmanuel probably has better data than I do for, for international figures. Um, and there's a lot of reasons driving that. I think the this act of underwriting I mentioned, where a bank needs to kick the tires and really understand the risk of a particular business, costs the same almost for a small business as it does for a big business. And with big businesses, there's a lot more information at hand and a lot more potential lending that those actors could, could garner from other players. So typically the big banks, as they've had to increase and shore up their tier one equity on the balance sheet, they've had less disposable funds that they can allocate to lending. And so they've gone kind of big as beautiful towards the, the bigger um, potential clients. And that's left a hole in the market for small and medium-sized enterprises, um, which is filled to a certain extent with credit funds, but they, they charge generally higher rates because they need to they don't have a cheap deposit base that they're using for a cost of capital they're, they're taking that from private funds um, and then other non-traditional sources of funding and this is where again i think the web3 world is, is is a great opportunity for us to use the power of, of humanity really to to get an interesting source of capital by digitizing product so if we can digitize the likes of um, 
commercial paper or fixed income products, which are routes to market now that are quite expensive for an SME to access, just coming to market costing. For example, with a bond, a couple hundred thousand. If you could bring that down to tens of thousands, you, you can then open up an asset class by structuring a digital debt product. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in tokenization and capital markets and how those products come to market. But something that GreenGage is quite keen to do is originate because we have relationships with SMEs and firms that are looking to borrow. And if we already know that they have good balance sheets, we see the transactional information and we have partners we can work with to bring that product to market, um, I think we can create something that would be very powerful to address that $22 billion sterling funding gap. You know, Sean, you, you mentioned two, thing, two parts that shouldn't be lost uh, uh, on anyone you know watching or listening to this uh, conversation is that the technology is one part of it and the and the balance sheet of the institution is the other part of it um, you know and how the institution releases um, enough of its assets to uh, you know to to cla- asset classes like like SMEs uh, and and a lot of the bank's capital is tied up on interbank lending uh, interbank exposure and and uh, and and liquidity management right so so the bank itself is hamstrung in reaching out uh, to to you know classes of customers that it should be reaching out to uh, on the customer side uh, and you know in 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 its entirety uh, what we're dealing with when it comes to SMEs is the symmetry of information which is that there are lots of information on the SMEs that the bank has got no access to, and there's lots of information on funding that the that the SMEs have no access to. So, um, in fact, right after the Asian financial crisis, uh, the Japanese banks perfected the art of uh, supply chain financing, um, which is uh, to provide capital without providing capital. Which is they looked at the uh, at the supply chain of a manufacturing process and worked with the huge, you know, the car manufacturers in Japan, for example, and not just in Japan, they, they replicated this in Thailand, where uh, the manufacturers, uh, you know, gave access to the banks, to the suppliers. And, and for any process, there are hundreds of the suppliers who, who work with these manufacturers. Uh, and the bank gives uh, the credit to the supply chain um, so that uh, the suppliers are paid on time uh, without any in- inventory uh, involved in the process. You know, and, and it worked very well. It works very well today in Thailand. You know, so uh, there are innovative ways uh, which uh, has nothing to do with technology yet. Then when you bring technology into the, into the equation, it is a case of uh, understanding um, you know, where the inventory sit, um, you know, uh, what are the supply chain time timelines like, um, you know, and, and right down to data in terms of manufacturing process and so on. Now, when you take all of that into account, uh, the bank has new forms of credit profiling that didn't exist before. Um, and some of the Chinese uh, peer-to-peer players uh, were perfecting that process uh, until um, a few of them uh, were fraudulent, and then they, you know, the regulators came in and they and they shut down the whole peer-to-peer industry. Uh, but uh, some of the best practices were being um, uh, developed. Uh, you cannot 
uh, assess a small business on the same business basis as a large business. You can't. There is no balance sheet. Um, you know, there is only in, you know the the five C's, the the character, the the you know the credit and all of that. So now the the thing is that when banks are willing to take on data that they weren't able to use before and and start drawing a picture of how the industry actually works, uh, that's where. Uh, the opportunity to lend comes from. Uh, during COVID, many governments around the world, and the UK uh, especially, um, the, started giving credit guarantees uh, for the you know banks to lend down to small businesses. Uh, and so banks actually acquired, and ma- in many countries, banks acquired uh, thousands of new small business customers. Um, you know, and in and in many countries today, um, they are deciding whether to treat these small businesses as, uh, you know, uh, miniature corporate banking businesses or uh, as uh, entrepreneur wealth management businesses where you're, you're not funding the business, you're actually funding the entrepreneur, um, you know, and, uh, and, and this is a work in progress that is taking place around the world. Uh, but it becomes perfected um, as there's greater symmetry of information both between the borrowers and the lenders, it's just like Uber. Um, if if I and the taxi have a have a clear idea of where each other is, um, you know, we we can get services when we want to at the rate that we want to, uh, and for the purposes that we want to. Very interesting. So this is where AI comes in. Ha! Uh, yeah, of course. So what I'm saying, by the way, is that. AI is going to give a second life to the peer-to-peer lending business or peer-to-peer investing business as well. And that's where I say that uh, the conversation is the product. So in the first iteration of peer-to-peer, whether it's peer-to-peer lending or peer-to-peer investment, strangely enough, the peer-to-peer players predicated their business model on doing exactly what the banks were doing. So in lending, for example, the bank, the, the, the peer-to-peer lenders were saying, our product is a mortgage. So we will, in, in getting a mortgage to you, we will go out and look for a lender uh, and match them with a borrower. Uh, you know, and the funny thing is that when you call your product a mortgage, the regulators sit on you. They start asking you to put aside capital and you know, all kinds of KYC and, and uh, uh, regulatory uh, burden on you that makes you start having the same costs as a traditional bank. Um, but the real purpose of a peer-to-peer model uh, is to match the lender and the borrower uh, without being uh, predictive in, in terms of what, what the end product will look like. And that's what I mean by the conversation is the product. Um, you know, so if two, if two parties or multiple parties are able to uh, you know, take, for example, a potential mortgage and say, Look, you want a 30-year relationship, but in the first three years, you can pay so much. In the next five years, uh, you might have other commitments. And after that, uh, you might be freed up to, uh, to take, take, take on another relationship. Uh, and if there are multiple lenders on the other side of the equation who, who can match that, uh, the, the whole mortgage starts to look different. Uh, and we were not able to do that um, in the original iteration because there was not enough information, uh, there were not enough players on, on board the platforms, uh, and there was not enough you know, data being generated to, to, to create these opportunities. And I think that um, as long as pe- uh, peer-to-peer players continue to encourage a lot more conversation on their platforms, 
the AI will help them to identify patterns that they can turn into products uh, in the future. So I'm very hopeful that uh, the peer-to-peer -peer model uh, will come back again, uh, you know, uh, being energized with AI. Uh, and um, it's very important that peer-to-peer -peer players uh, don't prejudge the idea that uh, the end result should be a traditional banking product. I think AI is very, very interesting, and we're all kind of looking at ChatGPT and thinking, how, how is this going to impact our business? Um, the idea of mass personalization, I, I think, is, I mean, you're, you're speaking to kind of what I, I agree with as, as the future for particularly retail um, or kind of generic models. Well, I think, um, uh, and here I'm going to go back to the Iron Man analogy, I think um, I, I've played a lot with ChatGPT, and it, 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 it runs to script, so you'll get something that is great, but it's never going to be exceptional. You'll 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 end up with um, uh, something that is in average or better than average. Uh, I think grammar-wise, it's probably <laughs> probably better than than the average on the street. But um, uh, but to use these technologies in a way that allows something exceptional to happen, I think requires an editor function. I mean, somebody who will be able to know what is better than what is being read to it on script. And it's that cadre of editors that I think bankers need to be. Uh, to be able to survive in what's coming. We, we have to be able to be better than the average, and that, I think, is going to be to the net benefit of the consumer. So we're very excited about that. Um, but it's not going to be an easy rise. And right now we're just using these texts as, as part, of, part of our solutions. But it's not something I'd bring to a client experience just yet, because I think chatbots, for me, um, don't really bring any magic to a client experience. They're, they're, they're actually something that, for me, I, I don't feel comfortable using, and I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to bring that to bear to our clients. 100%. Metaverse, let's talk metaverse because uh, Emmanuel, you need to know that Sean opened a branch in a metaverse. And uh, yeah, we want to, let's talk about what, what's the role of the metaverse here with, with banking. I mean, maybe I'll just describe what we've done because it, it is a bit of fun. Um, to uh, there's a project called Eldora, so short for Eldorado, the, the kind of the golden road. And what we've done there is built uh, essentially just a client experience. So people can navigate uh, in modern banking, branches are closing, physical premises aren't what they used to be. And we thought, let's open up a space where clients could come with an, with an avatar and see us and, and talk to us as, as a discovery process and have a bit of fun. I mean, that's the one thing I think the metaverse is, is doing, allowing that kind of gaming experience of, of a user interface, which is um, lifts you a bit. It, it's not the kind of drudgery of just the, the corporate office, um, but, but gives you something fun and, and engaging. Um, and so we're allowed to have kind of discovery chats with our clients. The trick is, um, uh, at least in Europe, GDPR or data protection rules. The metaverse is an open platform. So if we're having chats with our clients that are then confidential, as of now, we have to take those offline. But I think there will be solutions in place where we're allowed to maybe do more on metaverse uh, discussions, maybe in hidden rooms. Or we'll find a way to do it. It's just a, a matter of testing and time. Sean, uh, I, if you allow me to say this, okay, if if customers are not if customers are not entering a branch in the physical world, you know what makes you think that they will enter a branch in in the in the metaverse world? Um, I mean, that's my thing on on the metaverse. But coming back to the the point that I originally made. Uh, which is um, that um, banks had missed the API revolution. Um, you know, the metaverse is a beautiful place uh, for the API revolution to, uh, to, to come into full fruition where you allow your customers 
to build their own apps around their relationship with you. Um, you know, so um, you know, so this is something which um, uh, you know, this is something which banks need to think about. Uh, but they've spent so much time killing the API revolution within the institution, and and I, this is what I say to some of the fintech players, which is that uh, the banks have have reduced the fintech API players into patch solution vendors. Uh, in other words, uh, you are an API only if you are able to come in and solve some of the big problems that we have in the institution, in the bank. Um, you know, and, and it's not a criticism of any one player, it's just a general trend that I see everywhere. Uh, and a, and a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the fintech players who could have built uh, amazing APIs uh, around uh, an institution um, you know, that, that just didn't happen, basically. So I think that the metaverse sets the stage uh, for banks to, uh, you know, to, to, to be uh, facilitators of, um, you know, uh, everybody who, who operates in the metaverse to navigate their way through, live their lives, do uh, interact with each other, uh, you know, exist in the network world. But in order to do that, you know, the banking industry should allow uh, every user to build their own APIs on, on in the metaverse. And that's the real holy grail uh, to succeed in, in, in the metaverse. Uh, you know, that, that's how I see it, by the way. Just... I, I mean, I see two, two things. One, one, if I may just, um, I, I think I, I agree with you that you would need a user to have some kind of financial passport or some unique form of digital identity to access, a, a, say, an open API layer for them to really have a proper suite of products that they can access, either in the metaverse or otherwise. Um, the reason why I think clients are looking for a digital experience is they are looking for branch access. Um, they're just not getting it anymore because of the cost base of banks. Um, a lot of banks are closing physical branches, whereas people actually do want to, to go in a branch. Um, and it's not for day-to-day -day stuff necessarily. It's for that time when something doesn't work or they need help with a particular complicated form. Um, and that, that's when we thought we can deliver this at a cost-effective layer because it is digital. And when someone comes in the branch, you don't need to staff somebody 24-7 to, to kind of wait at a desk twiddling their thumbs. You can get an email prompt that a member of the sales team can go in and, and log in, load up their avatar at the point of that person coming in. Um, so efficiency-wise, um, you're, you're delivering an experience that it's not the same as in person, of course, but it's as close as you can get in a way that's still real. Um, so it's not a chatbot. It's, it's, a, it's a hello. It's a let me answer your questions. Let me listen to you. And I think that customer experience is something that we are very confident will survive in a metaverse-style format. Um, but, I, but I agree with you. I think the, the, the way that then the user or the client needs to engage is we also need to know who they are. Um, we, we can do this anonymously for the hello, but for us to open up any goods or service, you need to know exactly who you're dealing with because of AML regs, etc. Yeah, it's all come down to the things that we discuss, which is conversation is the product. We need to get data. We need to discover those. Uh, we need to collect those data. It's a discovery, like uh, Sean, like you said. So hopefully, you know, the banking system can come up with something that is innovative, is new, with a new narrative, new. Like we said, rather than uh, talking about banking, the unbank is uh, you know using different. Different, um, a different mindset. I think that's right, and it's great to see what you know new uh, fintech company are doing, like uh, Green Gage, pushing the boundaries and try to innovate and be actually be useful to to people and to companies. So yeah. I think it's a pretty actually, exciting. Actually, I wanted to ask Sean a question because the problem with being a digital bank today is that the pressures of 
being profitable as quickly as possible uh, are, very, are very high, right? So, you know, it's one thing to, uh, you know, so, so I was just thinking, you know, to ask Sean, like, uh, what are the pressures that you have and, you know, like immediate milestones that, that you're working on uh, that, that are revenue generating uh, and, and, and still, you know, keeping you in the, gen- the, the, the direction that you want to go? Uh, I'm curious to know because, um, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, forward looking and all that like me, but it's another thing to actually run a business. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's not easy. Um, to make a profitable business and we're not profitable yet but we're we're getting there it's um it's all about for me client experiences and getting longevity with client relationships making sure that they know that they're valued and us i mean the the profits that i've seen banks take for fairly standard products are are usurious on one level and where we see a value add is by addressing the pain points of our clients if we can listen and identify where they struggle and we add we add value for removing some of the pain where possible that that is a good business model and so we're, we're laser focused on uh, as of now client acquisition making sure our clients are happy we're getting very good testimonials but for us the, the push is just getting the message out which is why i mean these kinds of discussions are so helpful that i want people to know they have choice and, and firms like us need need clients that are good that uh, understand what we're doing and want to work with us because i have every intention of being here for the long term and and, and becoming a profitable business so that we can in turn uh, give back um, so that, that's i mean in brief i I think there are a lot of businesses that are purely focused on the numbers, um, and the numbers are a big part of our story, but they cannot be the only part of our story. And, and also, you, you're not head-on retail, are you? Uh, you're selective in your customer base. So, and, yes. and I like the idea that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, you're talking about uh, relationships, because when everything else is commoditized, the, the only thing of value is relationships. Um, you know, so and I think that uh, that rule applies in banking as it does in anything else. So, so in that way, you get to choose, pick and choose your profitable customers or, or something like that, right? Yeah, and we're we're open. I mean, there's a lot of in the UK specifically. There's there's a, a, a debanking phenomenon if somebody isn't necessarily of the the right uh, persuasion. We're, we're very open to people, regardless of their politics or where they come from as background, as long as they're lawful and we, we can assess their probity, um, we will work with people. So I think that level of relationship allows us to push through um, some of the factors that maybe other banks are struggling with. Um, but you're right. I, I think the, the retail market is, is a very tricky nut to crack and you need to have volume to, to, to win in that game. With us, we're, we're looking to go deep and, and build, build what we see as um, something that is, is more fit for purpose for businesses and, and high net worth individuals. But it, it's something that I, I would hope to offer to, to mass affluent or retail down the road. We just can't afford it yet. I think this was a great conversation. It was fantastic to have you on the show and uh, explore where the future of banking, if we can call it that way, is heading to, or financing, or um, it's just so exciting, really. Thank you so much for coming on, Emmanuel and Sean, and share your insight. Thank you, Sean. I mean, I, I really appreciated your insights because, you know, it's where the rubber hits the road, right? So it's one, you know, so I got to test a couple of ideas with you and, and thanks, Steffi, for great questions. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Steffi. Thank you, Manuel.